while we were still weak human beings following our bad hearts and broken ways. The chosen one died for us. It is not easy to find someone who is willing to die for a good person. Even though we might find someone with the courage to die for a very good person. But here is the way the maker of life proves how deep his love is for us. Even when we were still following our bad hearts and broken ways, the chosen one gave his life for us. The lifeblood that he poured out puts our lives back into harmony and promises us good standing with the great spirit. What he has done sets us free from the storm of great anger caused by our bad hearts and broken ways. So, if the lifeblood poured out by the chosen one has put us in good standing with the great spirit, then how much more will his life of beauty and harmony which has defeated death, now set us free to walk in his ways. But taking this a step further, we can now boast with glad hearts about what the great spirit has done through our honored chief creator sets free, Jesus, the chosen one. He is the one who has restored us back into friendship with the great spirit. Thanks be to God. I hope you are enjoying this reading through the indigenous uh, First Nations version. It takes a little getting used to, and the more I read it, the more I am enjoying um, just a different perspective. So today, our special guest is from World Relief, and I'm excited to introduce her. Her name is Christy. She serves up in Spokane. You can come anytime, anytime. So I was listening to the Holy Post, and they advertise. Did you know that the Holy Post advertises? Like you're you're the you're the ministry right now, yeah. And so I was like, oh, Missions Month is coming up, and then I I remember you know oh yeah, the first mission trip I ever went on was when I was 16, and World Relief put it together for us, and we were I went to Ukraine for a summer, and um and I remember I grew up on the West Side. And we, uh, one of my very best friends, his mom worked for World Relief. And so we would, it was very common for us to go and work. Like we would, seeds was a big deal at that time. Do you remember that? We would, so we would sort seeds and we would sort things. That was like what we did. And so I'm really excited to hear what World Relief is doing now. Um, so she's going to talk about justice. And we might get poked today. We might get poked. And it's okay. You have permission to poke us because I think as Christians we need to get poked. And maybe right now we need to be poked a bit more. And so you have freedom to poke us. We don't all have to think the same here. We are trying to learn as a community to hold different opinions in the same room and to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so with that, um, I'd like to pray for you and give you the mic. All right. Jesus, thank you for bringing Christy to us safely today. Thank you for her years of faithful ministry. Thank you for her resilience to stand up in front of people she doesn't know and boldly share what you have asked of her. Thank you for bringing our sister in Christ to be with us today. May we be willing to listen. 
May we be willing to be challenged. May our hearts, may we be willing to let our hearts be softened. I pray that you'd give her a boldness. Holy Spirit, hem her in. Speak through her. Be around her. May we experience you today through her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Heidi. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to try that one more time, you guys. I hear Pullman is a place that has really hearty, strong, enthusiastic people. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) There we go. Hey, kids, how many of you have ever met a refugee? Have you ever met a refugee? Maybe you met a refugee and you just didn't know it. It's quite possible. You guys, I have um, eight pages of notes here. And two sticky notes, and I'm going to go off my sticky notes, so (laughs) it won't be eight pages long, I promise you. Hey, um, I'd have to start just by letting you know, I absolutely believe with all my heart that the Spirit of God is on the move in our world. I'm seeing things that are happening in our world where God is just infusing people with his Spirit and calling us as Christians to rise up and really proclaim him to the world. You know, we live in an age when disruption and deconstruction, those are the two big buzzwords, right? There are people in our world who are trying to tear down the fabric of our culture, the fabric of our nation, and the fabric of our faith. And there's a little piece of me that kind of goes, Yay, bring it, because I know that when people do that, what does God do? I I really sincerely believe that there has been a moment in history recently where God has stood up from his throne and said, enough, enough. And he is awakening his people. He is sending his spirit forth. And I'm excited to be in Pullman this morning. I am... um, an open Bible pastor. Have you ever heard of the open Bible churches? No? You guys created the open Bible churches. So a long, long time ago, and I'm 350 years old, so I witnessed this in history. A long, long time ago, the Assemblies of God and Foursquare got together. Some people came, and you know how things happen in churches sometimes. People get a little disagreeable with each other. Well, God is bigger than that. And so people from the Assemblies of God here and Foursquare here, they came out of those and they got together and said, let's create a baby church. And they created the open Bible denomination. And I have no idea what their problems were. I'm just really grateful because there are three distinct denominations now that love the Lord and welcome the move of his spirit. So praise God for that. A little bit of my journey into, I love that you have that monitor back there. I, can, I don't have to go like this to see what's up. Thank you, whoever did that, genius. And genius to have a potluck when you have a special speaker too. That, wow. About 10 years ago, I walked into World Relief Spokane. I had, a, I had seen an ad for a job for an employment specialist and I had no idea what refugees were. I had no idea there were refugees in Spokane. I knew that one time in the late 90s, we had put together a bunch of blankets 
and I don't know what we were thinking. We sent them off to Sudan because there was a need in Sudan. I'm telling you, it cost us an arm and a leg to send those blankets. We should have just sent the money over there and said, buy a whole bunch more blankets than we can, than we can send. But we sent those blankets. And that was the only knowledge of refugees I had, really. So 10 years later, I walk into World Relief ready to start my first day on the job. And to say I was disappointed just walking in the door is an understatement. I remember opening the door and looking around and going, I thought I'd be working in a place where people were welcomed in something a little better than a refugee camp. And it really is just a very humble building. But, but that thought has stuck with me because my, my hope and my prayer is that as we engage with refugees, we will welcome them like Jesus welcomes them. You know, with open hearts, with open minds, with open hands, with generosity. So I walked in there 10 years ago, and for the first two weeks, I looked around and I went, Lord, really? Is this, what, is this really you? Did I hear you right? Or did I just miss you? Because it was, I'm hearing all kinds of foreign languages outside my door and seeing all kinds of people that I'd never met and people who were well outside my Western Christian worldview. And it messed with me. And I remember dropping my head to my desk and saying, I think I missed you, Lord. I think I really missed you. And I was truly ready to um, just give it another whirl, find another job. Well, it was during that time that my boss, who was Ukrainian, came to me and he said, Christy, how would you like to be the Sudanese mom? I don't know what a Sudanese is. I know where Sudan is. It's in Africa somewhere. I had never met a Sudanese person. I knew nothing about them. And I looked at my boss. Honestly, I said, Dimitri, I have two sons. They have beautiful wives. They all have children. I've got six grandkids. I don't need to be anybody else's mom. See how, see how close-hearted I was and kind of jaded? But I agreed to take these 20 single Sudanese men on my caseload. I'm a brand-new caseworker, know nothing about world relief, and now I'm going to be working with 20 single Sudanese men. What am I going to do with them, right? They don't speak my language. They're, they're a different culture. They're a different faith. They're a Muslim. I, I've spent like 10 minutes with a Muslim before that time, and I didn't know what to do. I seriously didn't. But I knew how to pray, so that was a good thing. So about a week later, I'm standing in the doorway of our classroom, and in walk these Sudanese men. And this just wrecks me, you guys. Every last one of them stopped at the door. They stuck out their hand. And the best way they could, they said, Hi, Mom. I'm glad to meet you. Hi, Mom. I'm glad to meet you. Some of them hugged me. And I was like, Whoa, what am I going to do with these guys? I don't know what to do with these guys. But as I watched them, I, I literally was watching them this way, walking in the room. Here come, Because the Sudanese people are the longest people in the world. I don't know if you knew that, but they are literally the longest people in the world. And as they all got seated in the classroom, I thought, I'm going to get them all a job in the NBA. That's what I'm going to do. They look like basketball players to me. 
but they weren't, and they don't play basketball in Sudan. I learned that really quick. So as time went by, I realized, and it didn't take me long because I'm a pretty hospitable person, I realized that more than anything, these guys needed family. They needed a place to belong. They needed a place where they felt like they were welcome and could just be who they are. So I invited them all to my home. <laughs> and I live in a lily white neighborhood, you guys, lily white. So I had to go to all my neighbors and say, hey, there's going to be a whole bunch of African people here and they speak Arabic and you won't understand them and they probably do crazy things and they're really, really loud and they're going to hang out at my house. And all my neighbors said, okay, no problem. So that started kind of this routine of, of Sudanese people coming to my house and I literally became the Sudanese mom at World Relief. Okay, I never planned on having 400 Sudanese people as my kids, but, well, that works for me, I guess. So let me ask you a question. All of these people that came are refugees, right? They're running from something. And I want to ask you the question, what would it take? I want you to imagine right now, armed men coming in the back door of the sanctuary, your phone's going off because your family knows that Pullman is being invaded. And you're, you're now panicking. You know something's happening and you see weird things and you're terrified and you run. And I'm a mom and I'm a grandma and my first thought are going to be, where are my kids? Where are my grandkids? Where's my husband? Right? But everybody's running, 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 running for their lives. That's what it's been like for a refugee. So when you hear things on the news about people being Im embedded within the refugee system to do terrorist acts in the United States, there has not been one terrorist act perpetrated by a refugee in the United States in the 40 years that the refugee system has been open. Part of that is because they are the most vetted group of immigrants in the world. They go through at least six different rest or government agencies before they can come to the United States. And people think that, that refugees go to a refugee camp, they sign up, they say, I want to go to the United States, and you know, a month later, here they are. It takes at least two years for them to get through the vetting system. It's not an easy process. I often tell my, my refugee friends, I, I don't think I could do what you did. The average stay in a refugee camp is 17 years. People stay in refugee camps. Imagine living in a tent for 17 years. So again, my question, what would it take for you to grab whatever you can grab, frantically try to find your family, and run? Leave your, your home, your workplace, all your possessions. Probably some of you have farms and livestock. Leave all of this that's familiar to you, your church, your friends, and just run. In hopes that you could first get to a refugee camp alive, second, find your family along the way, and third, hope that someday maybe you'd be re resettled somewhere in the world that's a little better than what you've got 
What would it take for you to do that? That question was asked at a um, World Relief Gala when I first came on staff at World Relief. And I'm telling you, it wrecked me. It just totally wrecked me because I thought, I'm a really comfortable Western American Christian. I've got you know, a reasonable home. We've got two cars. We've got pets. We've got family and friends all around us. What would it take for me to run to a refugee camp? It would have to be pretty severe for me to do that. So let me introduce you a little bit to World Relief. And I'm going to go to the next slide. And I have to pull all of my big, big notes out here, my really big notes. Like I've got these slides in really big letters so I can read them. So World Relief's mission statement is empowering the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Empowering all of you folks to serve the most vulnerable. We truly believe that refugees are central to the gospel. For God so loved all of us who are sitting in church on Sunday morning, no. For God so loved all the Christians in the world, no. For God so loved all the Christians and the morally upright people, no. No, 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 no. For God so loved all, everybody. He loved, he loved the people that were warring against his people. He, he loves the Muslims. He loves the Buddhists. He loves the atheists. He loves those who are totally against God. Does he tolerate that behavior? Does he let them stay in it? Absolutely not. But he loves them. He created them, right? How many of you are parents? How many of you have kids? Right? You created those guys, essentially, right? Do you love them even when they're not behaving well? How much more so the heart of God for us? And I, you guys, I'm a, I'm a conservative Christian, right? Before I went to World Relief, I, um, I was very much on the right. I guess this would be your right. I was very much on the right, and I thought that the best thing to do was for us to hang together and, and pray and, you know, praise the Lord and be really, really careful who we hung out with because that's kind of what Christians do. I was wrong. I was really wrong. So World Relief empowers the local church to serve the most vulnerable overseas. We have disaster relief programs, mother-child education, agriculture development, microenterprise development. And it says in the U.S. we have 17 offices, but I think we have 20, 22 or 23 now. We've got several new ones opening. And primarily refugee resettlement and wraparound services is what we do in the United States. You can go to the next slide. So today, this is the only slide I'll have with a whole bunch of words on it, but I just wanted to make sure we really get this. Today, millions of people around the world are suffering as a result of disasters, extreme poverty, conflict, and mass displacement. World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization that partners with local churches and communities to develop sustainable, locally driven solutions to these problems. Together we respond with compassion, advocacy, and technical expertise to build flourishing communities and bring about change that lasts. So our, our goal is to really welcome refugees in a way 
that both preserves their culture because how much how much more flavor is literally flavor i love some of the ethnic food i've tasted how much more color and flavor is there in a culture where there's diversity and aren't all of us somewhere along the line isn't that in our genealogy to have refugees we're, we're we all our our ancestors have been refugees at one time or another that's part of the beauty of america so who is a refugee you can go ahead and go to the next one refugees there there are so many different immigration statuses refugee is one there are refugees there are asylees there are humanitarian parolees and a, just a, a whole gamut of different immigration statuses refugee is a very specific designation that's recognized internationally and by the US government so a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee their country of nationality as a result of a well-founded fear of persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And due to this well-founded fear, they are they are unable to return to their country of nationality. When they declare that they are a refugee, they renounce their country. They can't go back. Okay, so it's a very specific group of people. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Refugee is defined and legally protected under the um, under international law, the Geneva Convention of 1951, and refugees are by far the most vetted group of immigrants. They have to apply to come into the United States before they arrive on U.S. soil. Once in the U.S., they have to get a work permit and government assistance. After one year, they have to apply for a green card. And after five years, they can apply for citizenship. So refugees aren't this willy-nilly group of people that just randomly come into the country whenever they choose to. There's a lot of regulations and rules around them. And that's what World Relief is here for, is to help them move through that system so that they can, they can ultimately become citizens and I have to tell you, I have this wonderful um, couple who are friends. Their names are Sheikadeen and Al-Nassim. And a couple, just a couple quick stories about them. I remember one day I had a, an appointment with Al-Nassim. And they're from a very male-dominated country, right? They're from Sudan. So I walked into our waiting room and I said, Hey, Al-Nassim, hey, Sheikadeen. Al-Nassim, come on, let's go. And Sheikadeen looked at me and he He's a very long person, and he said, Christy, in my country, the men go first. And I said, congratulations, Sheikadeen, you're in America. Come on, all the team, let's go. And we all laughed. We just laughed because he was kidding me. Um, but, but that is, you know, we, we work with them to try to help them attain citizenship. Five years later, after Sheikadeen and Al-Nassim became citizens, I said to Sheikadeen, so are you American or are you Sudanese or are you both? And he said, I'm American. And he, you know, he, he holds up his flag and he holds his certificate and he is proud to be an American. He loves our country. So it, it really is something that they just covet to become Americans. So let's talk about global displacement for just a second. 
in 2021, 89.3 million people had been forced to flee their countries, twice the number of people who were displaced in 2012. So, so all that to say the number of refugees is escalating exponentially all the time. So in 2012, there were 42.7 million people forced to flee. In 2022, 100 million people had been forced to flee. There are, there are well over 100 million people who are displaced. People can be displaced internally in their country, so they don't have a home, but they still live in the boundaries of their country, and they can be displaced, um, forced to leave their country. But either way, they can still apply as refugees. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. This is a picture of a refugee camp that's just outside of Bangladesh. The uh, Rohingya people from Myanmar, you may have seen this on the news, the Rohingya people were forced out of uh, Myanmar because they're Muslim. And so between 2017 and 2019, this refugee camp was built, and about 900 people, 900,000 people moved in there in two years. So Spokane, a few years ago, was about 350,000 people if you, if you took the whole metropolitan area. Spokane, Spokane Valley, Liberty Lake, Airway Heights was about 350,000 people. Over two years, the population grew about 20%, so 70,000. And I'm telling you, we are going crazy up there. We have no housing. Getting around is awful because of all the traffic. Can you imagine in the next two years, 900,000 people moving into the Pullman area? Can you imagine what that would be? Yeah, yeah, you guys would be way bigger than Spokane. Go ahead and go to the next slide. So you saw that looked like a nice, tidy little village with all kinds of little houses from the air. But this is what it looks like on the ground. And so they've taken whatever they can find, um, scrap metal, uh, wood, tarps, and they've built little shacks out of them. And in that picture, it's a nice-looking little village out of tar paper shacks. But once a year, the monsoon rains come, <laughs> and it kind of wipes out the whole village, so they have to then rebuild. But parents, can you imagine raising your kids in something like that and, and being there for years and years and years? I have a good friend who is from Bhutan. Bhutan's a country about this big just outside of India. And when she was a young child, her family was forced to leave their country, and they ran to a refugee camp in India. And she got married in the refugee camp. She had children in the refugee camp. And 18 years after her family went there, she, just an amazing lady, she and her family were the first Bhutanese people in the country, in the United States. Pingala is about this tall, and she's just a fiery little girl. She, she told me that she decided she, when she was in the refugee camp that there was no way her children were going to grow up in that refugee camp. So she started petitioning the, um, the embassy, the American embassy. She would go every week to the embassy and bang on doors and talk to anybody who would listen to her. 
And she was the person who was responsible for the Bhutanese people being allowed to immigrate to the United States. She's just a tiny little thing. But she did it. And she I that's that's the kind of people most refugees are. They're just people of fortitude and determination. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um I don't even have that one there. So let's go to the next one. <laughs> okay. This is a picture of a school, a typical school in a refugee camp. Is that a little different than what you guys have in school? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But these kids are just so grateful to be in school and learning in any way. That is one of the most difficult things in the refugee camp is the lack of education. That and people are not allowed to work. So boredom becomes a... Can you imagine being in a refugee camp for 5, 10, 15 years and you don't have any work to do? And your kids go to school with very limited resources for all that long. It's a, it's a very depressing place to be. Go ahead and go to the next slide. These are kids in Africa who are gathering water for their families. I showed this picture to a young friend of mine, and I'm going to tell you his story. In the group of Sudanese guys that we worked with, there was a young man named Omar. Omar was Muslim. And he had this just bubbly, effervescent personality. And I'm telling you, when Omar smiled, the whole room lit up. And he was just friendly and warm. Just a terrific young man. One day he came to visit me, and he was very discouraged and, and a little bit distraught. And I did the best I could. I gave him some ideas, told him I would you know, help him find some resources. And he thanked me, and he walked out of my office. And a few minutes later, I was told by one of my coworkers that I needed to come out into our classroom and look out the windows immediately. And I did, and I, I saw police cars everywhere outside of our building. And I, I got there just in time to see them putting Omar in the back of a squad car in handcuffs. I went running out there because I, I had no idea what was, what was happening. And that as I got to the car, the policeman stopped me, and he said, do you know Omar? And I said, yes. And he said, you need to go to Sacred Heart Hospital to the emergency psych ward as soon as possible. I just told my boss I'm out of here, and I left and went down to the psych ward. Well, I found out that Omar had uh, tried to take his own life um, across the street behind some houses, and, and one of the gentlemen in that house saw us. Well, I, I'm a mom, right? These are my boys. And I thought, this is not happening. This is not happening. I spent hours and hours and hours with Omar in the, in the emergency room, at the hospital. They finally got him stabilized, and he went home. I saw him a few d days later, and he was really distraught again. And I, I just couldn't help myself, you guys. This was so... This is such a God thing. It's, this is a God thing for me to do something like this. I didn't even ask my husband. He's a really great guy. He goes along with lots of stuff that I come up with. I saw, him a couple, saw Omar a couple of days later. He was distraught. I said, Omar, why don't you come live with us? Why don't you just come stay at our home? Just, just come and stay a few days. Get yourself together. We'll support you and help you. And he didn't. But... He, I saw him again. He's even worse than he was before. Omar, please come and stay with us. And now his friends are coming to me saying, you've got to help Omar. You've got to help Omar. 
And so they finally talked him into coming and staying at our house. Boy, I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> but, you know, it's a God thing, you guys. When, when God tells you do something, you do it. So Omar moved into our house, and it was an adjustment to, to get, you know, the two cultures together and trying to figure out how we were going to raise a 24-year-old guy who really needed, you know, a mom <laughs> and still let him be a 24-year-old guy. Well, it ended up being a two-year adventure. And here's like the sweetest moment of that adventure. Easter, the, the Saturday before Easter, Omar had been at work, so I stayed up late that night waiting for him to come home. And he came home. We have an island in our kitchen. And he plops down at the island and he says, Mom, is Jesus alive or dead? And I said, Omar, he's alive. And he's like, no, that can't be. You tell me how that can be. And I'm like, oh, honey, you have no idea what you're asking. But we had had lots of great Jesus talks all along, all along. What I found out from Omar is that Muslims, they're not that different than us. They're just missing some really critical pieces like the deity of Christ. Like there's a God who loves you and wants to welcome you instead of punishing you, right? So he's asking me all these questions about Jesus. And before he left our home, he came to me and he said, Mom, I believe. I believe. And so I don't know the level of that belief, but I know while Omar lived with us, those seeds were planted. And if I had done my I don't want to deal with Muslims thing that I was doing before I met them and they had faces and they had names and they had children, I would never have had the opportunity to just love on him for two years and know that whatever happened in his heart, God had him, right? It was a, it, that has messed with me in a huge way. It has messed with me because I had my Christian worldview and my theology and I was really comfortable in it. And then I started working with refugees. I'm going to tell you one more story and then I'm going to build a biblical foundation for welcoming refugees. Rawa used to come into my office. She's a tiny little Ethiopian lady, itty-bitty, frail as frail can be. She had four children. And when she got here, things did not go well because people were questioning whether she could care for these four children or not. And it got really ugly. So Rawa walks into my office one day, and she drops her head on my desk, and she's just weeping, weeping, weeping. And she has, she has her fist clenched like this, and she opens it up, and a piece of crumpled paper falls out on my desk. And I, I uncrumpled it, and it's a picture of Jesus. She's a Christian lady. And as she's weeping in, in her very broken English, she says, Jesus, no friendy. No, friendy. And she pushed the picture away at me. And I thought, there is no way I'm going to let this lovely little lady think that Jesus doesn't love her anymore. And there's no way that I'm not going to fight for her kids. And, and again, it just wrecked me. 
So this little gal and I partnered up. And today, Rawa walks into World Relief. She's a little, little bit healthier, shall we say. She'll have a big grin on her face, and she's got her kids. It took an entire village to raise Rawa and her kids, right? They had volunteers from churches. They had community agencies working with them. And it took all of us working together to help hold this family together and prove to her that Jesus was her friend indeed. It's so amazing to see how God will mess with you when you start loving on refugees. Can you go to the next slide? So let me build a biblical foundation for welcoming the stranger. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the, the biggest foundation piece right there. It is the simplicity of the gospel. It's the simplicity of the gospel. The most disruptive force in the entire world is God's love for all of us. I'm telling you, if you want to disrupt something, you just start going out and loving on people and telling them that Jesus loves them, and it will change everything. So God loves our refugees. Matthew 25:35 says, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Those are Jesus' words. I was a stranger, and you invited me. You gave me clothing. You gave me drink. You invited me in. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And Leviticus 19:34 says, The foreigners residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. A number of months ago, we celebrated a, a little-known holiday called Christmas. <laughs> the entire world paused to celebrate Jesus, right? Jesus was a refugee. Mary and Joseph had to flee their country with Jesus to avoid being, having him killed by a wicked king. He, Jesus himself was a refugee. So when we welcome refugees, we are living out the heart of God. And I, want to, I think there's one more slide there that I want to touch on. Nope, there's not. Um, the big question that people always ask is, and I ask these questions myself, why are we bringing these people here? They're taking our jobs. They're, they're draining our social services system. Within 20 years of being in the United States, the average refugee has given back about $21,000 more than they took as a refugee. So I want you to see these cute little kids down here. How much are they contributing financially to our economy? Right? But do we still love them? Do we still welcome them? Because we believe in their future. We know that they're going to grow up to be productive, productive members of society. <laughs> right? They're eventually going to take care of all of us. It's the same with refugees. They're not here to take. They're here to give. They're here to give. If you walk up to a 
most refugees, most refugees, and you compliment, especially the women, compliment them on something they're wearing, they will take it and hand it to you. I was with a guy, a Syrian guy, and a brand new staff member. And the staff member looked at the Syrian guy and said, hey, I like your watch. The Syrian guy takes it off and hands it to him. I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Because they're, they're so giving. I thought when I invited them to my home, I, I slaved and slaved and slaved and made food and food and food. <sighs> what was I thinking? They brought way more food than I could ever have thought to bring. They're loving, generous, giving people. Are they different than us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're different than us. But how often did, pe- did Jesus hang out with people who were different than him, right? Jesus hung out with the people that were on the fringe of society. Okay, this, I'm going to close with this. The simplicity of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I know that in Pullman you don't have a lot of refugees. I would really like to change that because <laughs> I think there are, we have um, refugees coming in who would be very comfortable in Pullman and who would probably love your lifestyle here. But you can pray for refugees. You can pray for world relief. I'm telling you, we're in a battle all day, every day because we're a faith-based organization. <laughs> and so please pray for the staff of World Relief. Pray for World Relief. Pray for our Muslim and Hindu and atheist and, you know, all the other ists that come into the country because it's really simple, you guys. Jesus loves them and wants to love on them, and that's why he's bringing him, them here. The mission field is coming. to You don't have to go to Africa. The mission field is right here. My big question is, do we have the courage to rise up and enter into the mission field and do what God has called us to do? And I'm wondering who's coming up here at the end of this. <laughs> I love your staff, by the way. I, I'm still trying to figure out who the pastors are, but I think Heidi is one. <laughs> Thank you. It's kind of, when I went to Mexico last year, um, one of the things a lady, there was a Kenyan lady on the team I was with, and she said, I love that I had no clues who the pastors were. And and I just kind of held on to it. She's like, I love, I didn't know, was it that person? Was it this person? Was it that person? And and so I kind of held on to that when I came back. So um, my husband and I get the pastor here together. And uh, Janice is teaching Sunday school, and, and she's on. She pastors with us, so that's who we are. And okay, yeah, yeah. And Julie does a little pastoring, whether she knows it or not. So, because it's who she is. I'm a little speechless. I noticed something you said that Bruce said over and over again. When God tells you to do something, you do it. Did you hear Bruce? Bruce said that in his own way. He kept pointing up here. And and you said it takes courage. Let's just be a little more courageous here at Pullman Foursquare. Just a bit more. Let's do it. So when God tells us to something... I want to stop coming up with excuses. 
or talking myself out of it, talking ourselves out of it. Listen. You can listen. When God tells you to do something, let's, let's do it. We're going to eat together, and Christy's going to stay, and she's going to be with us and mingle with us. If you have questions, you whatever, and want more stories, and check out her table out in the foyer. There's some books that I've been told are very good resources. So if your heart's been pricked and you love to read, um, maybe uh, ask how to get one of those books. And let's let's pray for our food now, and then we can head back. We have to grab a few extra chairs. And I want you to know, if you did not know that we were having a potluck today, for whatever reason, we plan for that, and we make big pots of food. So you're all welcome to join us today. We made extra. Sherry brought a full crock pot. I brought. I saw several full crock pots. So please stay. We would rather you be with us um, than skedaddle. So. Um, Oh, we end, we end with singing the doxology. So you guys want to join me? All right, please stand and join me because I'm going to take that mic down. And um, yeah, I'll pray really quick. God, thank you for the food. Bless it. We pray because that's what Christians do when we eat together. So we pray for our food. We pray for um, our time together. All right, let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings.